We're in something called a fearless campaign. Fearless is our theme for the next two years. You just met some of our fearless global partners, over 50 around the world, and this is our global outreach month. So we've taken a little break from our study of Ephesians. We'll come back to it in November, but we're really focusing on what God has called us to do, I think, with the greatest cause ever given among men. We call it the Great Commission. It's what Jesus said when he said, go you therefore make disciples of all nations. Second Corinthians chapter eight and nine is the quintessential chapters in the Bible when it comes to fearlessly living with generosity. And that's what we're talking about here on Sunday mornings, fearless generosity, to be a generous church that can make an impact, not just locally, but globally around the world. So let me ask you a question as we get going. It's the question the Apostle Paul is gonna ask the Corinthians, thereby asking each of us, what will you do for love? Uh, a better question is what will you not do for love? All right, where does love hit its limit? So Krista and I just celebrated this week in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, our 28th wedding anniversary. So Eureka Springs and these little rock cottages have kind of become a special place to us. We go back here every three or four years. And the reason why, there's a story. 28 years ago, we were a young married couple taking our first ever family vacation, just the two of us. We went to Branson, we went to Eureka Springs, and we pull into Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and we drive by these little rock cottages. And Krista wanted to stay in this little rock cottage 28 years ago, just this young married couple. Now, you know, they're not really man-friendly, rustic, you know what I'm saying, cabin in the woods somewhere, but they're cute, they're quaint, they're pastels. I mean, it's the kind of place every girl would love to stay. So I get out of the truck, I go into the office to inquire how much is it to stay the night in this little rock cottage. And in the early 90s, it was $85 a night yeah, that's what I said. Ooh, silent groan. Like 85 bucks a night, I'm thinking about, are you kidding me? Like there is no bed in the world worth 85 bucks a night. No way, Jose. So I'm leaving the office to come back to the truck to tell my new wife we're not staying in the Little Rock Cottages. I don't know this for sure, but in my mind's eye, I think I was singing this song to myself. You probably know it. If you know it, Go ahead and sing along with it, all right? It's that song that says. I'm not doing 85 bucks a night, all right? I do anything for love. But love hits its limit at 85 bucks a night. So we drive on down the road, and I find a campground, and I pitch a tent <laughs> for 10 bucks a night. Yeah, you know, I'm, 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 I'm thinking lavishly here, aren't we? We're like, so I'm pitching a tent, because it's 10 bucks a night, $85 a night, 10 bucks a night. I don't even have enough sense, like I'm a new husband, okay, so give me a little grace. I don't even have enough sense to have an air mattress, okay? <laughs> so we stay the night in this tent for 85, not for 85, but for 10 bucks a night, and guess what happened next? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> nothing. 
Now fast forward 14 years with me, okay? I've learned a little something, not much, but a little something. We go back to Eureka Springs. I've always felt kind of bad. We didn't stay in the Little Rock Cottages. It's 14 years later. I'm gonna take her to these Little Rock Cottages. I go in, guess what? The price has doubled. <laughs> but we stayed in those Little Rock Cottages. That's right, we did. So every three or four years, we circle back to Eureka Springs. Now, I've learned a little bit about love in the years since. All right, what I've learned is it's always worth living generously. It's always worth living lavishly. So we're on our first ever vacation and we go to the Passion Play in Eureka Springs. That's part of why we went there and it's, you know, the open amphitheater, the life of Christ, it's crucifixion, resurrection. I look over and my wife is nodding off. She's falling asleep on Jesus. But I'm offended because it feels like she's falling asleep on me. Baby, I've spent money on this. Come on now. Poor girl was tired, worn out, exhausted. I'm just trying to tell you, it, it, it pays to be generous. It, it pays to open up a little bit and live a little lavishly for the ones you love. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to communicate to you and me as it pertains to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he's comparing and contrasting the giving of the Macedonians with the giving of the Corinthians. And what we're going to learn today, listen, we're going to learn to ask this question, where does your love hit its limit? Hey, for me, 85 bucks a night, that's, that, that's too high. Uh, well, what is it true of, of the ones that we love, but it's true of Jesus? Uh, where does your love for Jesus hit its limit? At what point do you go, God, I'll do that, God, I'll do that, God, I'll do that, but I won't do that? See, where does your love for God hit its limit? I won't do that. And what Paul is teaching us here is this, and our love is always reflected in what we will or won't give. It's true of all human relationships. Our love is not reflected in what we say, but rather what people see. And that's why we like to say at our church, here's the mission of our church, we want to be a church that is living proof of a loving God to watching world. But as they say, the proof is not in what you say, the proof is in what you do. We want to be living proof. And so consequently, we want our proof of God's love and God's love for people to be tangible. We want it to be something that is truly touchable. It's got to be something that people can see and not merely something we say. And that's what's happening now in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. What is happening. Historically, there's been a famine all over the Roman world. And because of famine, there's so many places in complete poverty. And the church at Jerusalem has been deeply impacted by this famine. And the church at Jerusalem is in deep poverty. And so just like today, 2,000 years later, churches often come together for a relief effort, for a combined disaster relief. And that's what the apostles and the early church is doing. So the apostles and their associates are going around to the different churches that have been planted in the Roman world. They're taking up an offering. And you have the Greeks, specifically these churches of Macedonia, the churches of Perea, Thessalonica, and Philippi. You have a book in your Bible called First and Second Thessalonians. You have the book of Philippians. Those churches were in the north of Greece, along with the church of Berea. And then you have the church down here in Corinth that Paul is writing this letter to specifically. Now, these churches up here were in poverty. 
They had been deeply impacted by this famine personally. They should be receiving this offering, but they insisted on giving this offering and participating in this offering. Where the Corinthian church, they'd made a bunch of lavish promises a year earlier. They were very wealthy. They're on this land bridge. They're a port city. So consequently, it's a city of commerce, and they are very wealthy materially, but so far they'd given nothing. Where the Macedonians are in poverty, but they have given beyond their ability, and so Paul is comparing the giving of the Macedonians with the giving of the Corinthians. He's saying, guys, I want you to see the Macedonians and see them as the example of something we ought to aspire to be. That though they had nothing, they had given lavishly and generously. Their love had not hit its limit. And so we're going to pick it up right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. You ready for this? Say yes. Where does giving begin? How do we begin to live generously? When what comes naturally is a scarcity mentality, like I need to hang on to what I have. I'm not going to give it away, right? That's, that's the natural way to live. But Paul's teaching us how we can start to live generously, and generosity is a core value of our church. We want to give away what God has given us. So he says this, but as you abound in everything, first he commends the Corinthians, as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also, the grace of giving. And first he commends them. He's saying, Corinthians, you have grown spiritually. I'm so proud of what you've allowed God to do in your life. And just like so many of us here, I hear your story so often. I love hearing your story of what God is doing in your life and how you're growing spiritually and how Jesus is setting you free from various forms of captivity and, and how you're bringing God greater glory. It is so exciting. And that's what Paul, he's commending them. First of all, he says, you have grown in faith You've grown in speech, you've grown in knowledge. In other words, he's commending them because they had grown in their faith in God, in their testimony of the Son of God, in their knowledge of the Word of God, in their diligence, meaning their, their faith is now unshakable. He said, you've grown in your love for the people of God. See then that you grow also in your giving to God, that God does this work of grace in you. And it's always a work of grace. Everything in our life is, is a work of grace. Grace is what God does in you and through you and for you. Grace is nothing you do for you. Every part of the Christian life is a work of God's grace in us and for us and through us. And so he's saying to the Corinthians, let this grace in terms of your giving financially to kingdom priorities begin to catch up to all these other areas of which you grow. And here's the reality, guys. How we feel about our money is a metric of our spiritual maturity. In other words, as you grow spiritually, you naturally start to view your money differently. And Paul's, he's saying, look guys, you have grown in so many areas of your life. You've grown in so many areas spiritually from your faith in God, your knowledge of the word of God, and your speech, as in your, your testimony of the son of God. You need to let this area of your life catch up because here's the reality. Most of the time, when we are growing spiritually, the last thing that lags behind is guess what? how we feel about our money. It's the last thing that we really start to walk in God's grace for, why? Because we naturally turn to money for our source of security. We naturally turn to money for our source of safety and our protection and our provision. But do you understand that anything you turn to for your sense of security and safety, protection, provision, other than God, that is an idol. We all struggle with the idolatry of money. 
And that is why consequently the Corinthians had not yet caught up in this area of their church family corporately and individually. They still had the scarcity mentality that though they were wealthy financially, they still given nothing. And a year earlier, they'd made these big boasts about how much they were gonna give. They still hadn't given anything. So Paul is writing to them saying, look, I'm sending Titus to you. Just want you to prepare ahead of time because you promised this offering for this relief effort, just so you know he's coming, and I want the grace of God that the Macedonians received to also work in you too. And that's God's desire for all of our hearts, for all of our lives today. He says, listen, in verse eight, I speak not by commandment, but watch this, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. I want you to know something. He says, I don't speak by commandment. In other words, check this out. In the New Testament, we're New Testament Christians. Did you know that tithing is not a commandment? Paul's not saying, I'm speaking to you out of a list of things to do. And so much of the time when it comes to giving in this part of our lives as Christians, it becomes about a list. And so people want to talk about the tithe. And I've heard a lot of pastors when they teach on giving, it's all about the tithe and you need to be tithing. I want you to understand what the New Testament really teaches. We're not under the old covenant where God commanded the Jews to give a tithe. We're under the new covenant, a covenant called grace. And that's why Paul repeatedly calls this grace giving, meaning it's not about a list, it's born out of of love. Everything in our relationship with Jesus should be born out of our love for him and his love for us, not about the old covenant of law, which had to do with a list. Consequently, there's no commandment to tithe. A tithe, by definition, means a tenth, a tenth of your income. But that's not the issue that Paul's addressing. You know what he's addressing here? He's addressing the issue of generosity. See, you might give a tenth of your income, and for you personally, that's not generous at all. On the other hand, you might give 2% of your income, and for you, that's extreme generosity, that's extreme costly. And so consequently, he's saying, hey, don't get caught up on the percentage or how much you give. Rather, God is more interested in how you give what you give. Generosity ought to be what compels every person that follows Jesus. It's not the size of the gift, but rather the sacrifice of the gift that is in view. He says, I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. He's saying, first, the Macedonians, they had nothing materially, yet they gave beyond their ability. Why? Because of their love for Jesus. What we give financially is the test of our sincerity. Seriously. It's in true in every relationship, whether it's marriage, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a family relationship. You see, the reality is word, words come easy and talk is cheap. And so you know what Paul's telling the Corinthians that had made this promise a year earlier and still hadn't given the offering that they had promised? You know what he's saying, quite frankly? Put your money where your mouth is. I mean, literally, you, you promised you would give this to help with the disaster relief, this kingdom priority, and what you were gonna give financially. Hey, put your money where your mouth is. It's impossible to say, baby, I love you. But then you never take your wife out on a date. I don't know how love is spelled at your home. Let me tell you, it's spelled in my home, HGTV. <laughs> Instead of ESPN. 
You get what I'm told you, I've learned a little bit in 28 years. Not much, I'm learning a little more. See, my point is, it's impossible to say I love you and then do nothing for the one you say you love. It's impossible to say I love you and then still live selfishly like it's all about you. So in this case, Paul's saying, put your money where your mouth is. I am testing the sincerity of your love. And here's the reality, dear church. What we spend our money on defines that which we really love. I can show you what you love if you show me what you spent your money on last month. That's what Paul's saying here. It's always the test of the sincerity of your love. Now, it's not that Americans don't spend lots of money on stuff they love, they do. In fact, uh, I took the liberty to look some of these statistics up. I want you to see that ultimately uh, what we learn here about retail spending, for example, let's just for example, fishing, retail spending on our hobby, specifically fishing. Now, I'm not, I'm not picking on people who fish. I like to fish. It's not a sin to have a hobby. It's not a sin to go fishing. In fact, I decided a long time ago that I was gonna go with fishing instead of golfing. Guys, I'm sorry. I tried to fall in love with golfing. We just weren't compatible. Uh, it, it just, we weren't compatible. I don't know, personality, what it was. Just, I tried to fall in love for a long time with golfing. I couldn't do it. But I, I do enjoy fishing. All right, so here we go. Do you believe, just by, oh, no, just, just by everybody take a vote. I want to hear you vote. So you're going to clap wherever you think the correct answer is. Annual retail spending on fishing in the United States is at 35.7 million. You say? A few. Is it 357 million, you say? Or is it 35.7 billion? That's kind of a tie between the second. You say 357 million? We need a tiebreaker. We need you to vote. Or is it 35.7 billion? And the winner is. $35.7 billion every year spent on fishing. Apparently, Americans love fishing. They love fishing more than golfing. I looked this up. $13.4 billion spent on golf every year compared to $35.7 billion. It's no wonder Bass Pro bought out Cabela's. I mean, we're making these guys rich. Now, it's not bad. Listen, I'm, of the $35.7 billion, I probably contributed $225 last year. I mean, I did my part. <laughs> I want you to see, though, you, you give to that which you love, don't you? Apparently, we love fishing a bunch. We do. Uh, how about this one? Annual spending on Halloween pet <laughs> costumes. <laughs> this is for real. It is a growing thing. Apparently, we love Halloween, we love our pets. So, go ahead and vote. Is it 4.4 million a year? Anybody? Any takers? A few? Okay. Or is it $44 million a year? Or is it $440 million a year? The winner is $440 million this month will be spent on Halloween pet costumes. Are you serious? We're crazy. How we spend our money. 
$440 million this month will be spent on Halloween pet costumes. Now, I'm not against costumes, I'm not against pets. 440, we, we apparently love our pets and we love Halloween, you know how I know? Because we spend a lot of money on it. Hey, there's nothing wrong with golf, but some of us here spend more money on golf than we do the gospel. There's nothing wrong with fishing, but some of us spend more money on our fishing trips than we do being fishers of men. There's nothing wrong with pets, and if you want to dress up your pet, that's between you and your pet. I'm just saying. (laughs) Some of us spend more money on our pets than we do projects for missions. You see, he's testing the sincerity of your love. Some of us love our dogs and our cats more than we do the souls of men because we spend more money on our dogs and cats than we do to take the gospel to the souls of men and women. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to guilt you if you're a dog person. Who, dog people? That's okay. Cat people? Dog people? Are you my people? Cat people, you're not my people. No, I'm just kidding. I like you. I do. I like you a lot. Just not your cat, but I like you. But see, here's what we're learning. It's not that we won't spend money on things we love. We all spend money on things we love. We spend money on our dogs and our cats to have costumes. We spend money on our hobbies, whether it's golfing, whether it's fishing. Here's one more, look, watch this. Annual spending on lawn and garden. Yeah, grown, me too. Some of us need to spend a little more money on our, (laughs) just saying. So, average American household, what do we spend? Is it a total per year, 478 million, you say? 47.8 billion, you say? Or 478 billion? Nah, I changed it up on you. It's not C, it's B, okay? $47.8 billion. Some of you take multiple choice tests the way I did in school. I can tell. Always go with the last one. A, B, C, it's always C. Hope for the best. $47.8 billion the average American house spends on lawn and garden. Once again, it's not sinful. It is not unbiblical. In fact, I think we ought to be a steward. The Bible uses the word stewardship. All that God has given us, including our house, we ought to be stewards of. We should take care of them, which means we ought to make them look nice and plant flowers. And a lot of people don't know this about me, and they might even make fun of me, but I'm just going to admit it openly. I like flowers. I do. I plant flowers every spring. I've got a rose garden. I like roses. Adam was a gardener, what can I say? All right, I spent a little bit of money. I, for the first time, had somebody come out and spray my weeds. So frustrated, I did my part to contribute to the $47.8 billion. But I want you to see that we spend more money on our gardens than we do taking the gospel to the world. We're willing to spend more money to have a green, lush lawn or follow little balls around a green manicured golf course of some kind, and in the end, to take the gospel to a world that is dying. 
And this is why Paul is saying, listen, the, the, the issue is not money, it's how we spend our money. It, the issue is our priorities. It's not that we don't love and serve that which we love. He wants us to see that how we spend our money is a test of that which we love. And so as you grow spiritually, you will naturally change how you view your money. As you grow spiritually, you will naturally start to live with more and more generosity as it pertains to kingdom priorities. And I'm telling you this because a lot of you may not know if you're new, though some of you have been around a long time, you already know. We're in this thing called the fearless campaign and we do ministry in two year runs. Most people can't see 20 years in advance but most people can see two years in advance. And so as a church, we set goals over the course of two years. And we're currently in what we call a fearless campaign. Fearless is the theme where we're learning to be faithful so we eventually fear less. Fear controls so many people in life. Fear, anxiety, insecurity is what holds so many in captivity. And so we're focusing specifically on overcoming our fears and learning to live by faith. And Paul's dealing specifically now with the fear of finances and why so many of us live so tightly with the scarcity mentality, even though some of us are like the Corinthians with lots and lots of money. Because in the end, it's not about how much money you have or how little you have, but rather the attitude toward what you have. And God is dealing now with the attitude inwardly uh, of terms of how we look at our money. And so I want you to see that he's saying it's a test of your faith. It's a test of the sincerity of your faith. Your willingness to give financially to what matters to God is a test of your true love for God. It's a test of your spirituality. And so we're in this fearless campaign. Here are some goals that we have as a church. And I've talked a lot about this, and you're going to hear more about this. But one of our goals in this two-year run called Fearless was to launch a campus in Blue Springs. And it's coming. It's on the way. We're going to have our first service on Christmas Eve in Blue Springs. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be awesome, isn't it? See, we're convinced that if we want to see lives changed by Jesus, and that's the, the vision of our church, see lives changed by Jesus, then the best way we can do it is not through addition, but through multiplication. So in the last three years, we've started three churches, one in Wentzville, Missouri, Red Tree, another one in South Kansas City called Three Trails, another one in the north part of our city up by the airport called Discover, and now we're launching our first campus. It's gonna be in Blue Springs. That's one of our initiatives. Uh, we talked last week, and I'm talking more about it this week, about our church launch in Peru. We wanna launch a church next year in Peru, and we wanna sponsor a 1,000 kids through Compassion Too. And let me just celebrate this with you. As of right now, 551 children in Peru have been sponsored through me and you. That is awesome. It's incredible. I mean, I'm so proud to be your pastor. I know the Bible has nothing good to say about pride. So let me, re let me just rephrase that. I'm so humbled to be your pastor. I'm so thankful for you. Here's the deal. If we want to be a generous church, it takes generous people. And I just want to thank you for living generously. $38 a month to sponsor a child through compassion. Hey, for some of us here, we could sponsor a child at $38 a month and we would never even miss the 38 bucks. We got enough disposable income, whatever that is. I've never had it. 
That's what people call it, disposable income, well, this, whatever this is. But you have enough income that is not all necessarily budgeted. 38 bucks a month is not costly. It is easy. It's not risky. For others of us here, 38 bucks a month is an incredible stretch of faith. I mean, it's a gigantic jump. And I want you to see wherever you find yourself in your giving financially to kingdom priorities, God wants to stretch you. God wants to grow you. As Paul said to the Corinthians, let God grow this grace in you too. So wherever you find yourself, now this is the reality. I'm just trying to be gut level honest with you as your pastor. As Abundant Life, we're doing some new things. Launching a church campus in Blue Springs, launching a church and compassion center in Peru while we're getting out of debt too. The goal is to be debt free completely as a church family in two years. Why is that mission critical? Because once we're debt free, we can give, them more, give more away than two. I mean, the more God gives us, the more we can give away. So I want you to see we have these gigantic initiatives, these gigantic God-sized goals. And since we're doing new things, just being honest with you, we need some new givers too. If you call Abundant Life home, this is, this is what God's expectation of all of us. If you call Abundant Life home and you believe in the vision of seeing lives changed by Jesus, launching the campus in Blue Springs, launching a church in Peru, then God says, don't just be for the vision, support the vision. That's what God's expectation is. Support the vision, don't just be for the vision. And so this is what I'm asking you to do. This is what Krista and I is doing personally. Listen, for some of you here, you've tithed a long time. Krista and I have been tithing, giving a tenth, actually more than a tenth, for 30 years of our life. Guess what? That's easy. It used to take a lot of faith. Today it takes no faith. Guess what we're doing? God, how would you like to stretch our faith? What more of your money would you like us to give? See, as a Christian, we don't own anything. God owns everything, and it should no longer be how much of my money should I give to God. The mentality becomes how much of God's money should I keep for me. And so I'm asking you to do what Chris and I are doing. Begin to pray. Listen, begin to pray. God, as it pertains to these kingdom priorities and our giving financially, how would you like to grow us in this grace? Uh, if you're not giving anything, and some of you are brand new Christians, you've really just started following Jesus, you've never trusted God financially really with anything, you know what Paul is saying? Don't feel like you gotta jump off completely with a tenth, a full tithe. That is not the issue. If you're not doing anything, haven't given anything, then start with something. But here's what I want you to hear me say. I've said it last week, I'll say it again. Most people are tippers. What God wants are givers. What's the difference between a tipper and a giver? A tipper is somebody who, well, what can I afford to give? Uh, just tell me the bare minimum so I don't feel guilty. See, that's why the tithe gets talked about in church so much. There's the list. Just give me the list. Just give me the list of things to do. So the tipper doesn't have any real prayerful, intentional, systematic approach to how they're gonna give financially. Being a giver means this, you're going to leave here today, if you haven't already, and you're gonna start praying, God, show me what generosity looks like to me. Uh, God, would you begin to grow this grace in me? 
For some, it may be 2% of your income. Others, 4% of your income. For somebody else, it might be 10%. Somebody else, it's gonna be 20%. You know why? Because what is generosity for one person is not generosity at all for another person. And the issue is generosity. It's when I'm starting to give in a way that I willfully, not because somebody wrenches this out of my hand, but because I willfully desire to give back to Jesus that has given so much to me personally, not because it's a list of things to do, but it's born out of love, God's love for me, and now God's love for you too. You see, that's what's at stake here. Listen carefully. Your level of love is always reflected in your level of sacrifice. Sacrifice is the definition of love. You sacrifice for that which you love. And that's what Paul now says to the Corinthians. As you begin to pray about these kingdom priorities, supporting the vision of the local church. And I just want you to say, this this sounds really self-serving. You know why? Because I pastor this church. Okay. But I want you to see, I'm not trying to be self-serving. I want you to grow spiritually. I want this grace to be alive in your life as it's becoming increasingly alive in my life. And I just want you to see, theologically, I'm convinced the priority in our giving should be the local church, the church you attend. All right, now listen carefully. You have the Old Testament. You had what was called storehouse giving. In Malachi chapter three, the temple or the tabernacle was the storehouse. The Old Testament Hebrews were told to bring their tithes and offerings to the storehouse because the temple was the place that God intended to use as a lighthouse to the nations. And so God wanted to use the ancient Hebrews and their temple specifically to reach the nations. Now God still does. His plan is still in place. You come to the New Testament, where's the temple? In the New Testament, we are the temple. The church is the temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And so he still wants the church as the temple of God to be the lighthouse to the nations. It's the church through which God wants to reach the nations. So theologically, my priority is giving to the church and not just because I pastor this one. I would give to whatever church I attend because theologically, that's the priority you see on the heart of God. But practically, I want you to see the implications. If people don't support abundant life, there's no abundant life Blue Springs. It never happens. If people don't support abundant life, there's no church in Peru and a thousand children sponsored too, that never happens. If people don't support abundant life, there's no counseling center that met with 7,000 people last year to minister soul care. If there's no abundant life and people don't support the local church, there's no food pantry back here that supported 4,000 families in our city last year. You see, the reality is it's through the local church that God wants to go forth in missions and ministry. And that's just true theologically, but it's also true practically. And so that's why Paul's now writing to this local church known as Corinth. He wants the Corinthians to be that lighthouse to the nation as he wants the abundant lifeians to be the lighthouse to the nations. He says, I'm doing this to test the sincerity of your love and sacrifice is always the litmus test of love. Love always requires sacrifice. That word love in the New Testament, when he says, I want to test the sincerity of your love. Guys, listen, it is not some ooey, gooey, warm, fuzzy feeling. The word is agape. 
And I'm telling you that because when I talk about giving financially, testing the sincerity of our love for God, a lot of us have a you know, discompute. I just can't quite compute with that because we think love is all about an emotion. It's all about some ooey, gooey, warm, fuzzy feeling. But do you understand that agape is the word in the Greek? We have one word for love. And that's why, you know what, in our culture, love doesn't have a lot of meaning anymore. I can say, I love ice cream, and that would be true. I'm not the only one I know that loves ice cream. Okay, some of you do too. I love ice cream, but when I say I love ice cream, it means something totally different than when I say I love my wife. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's just one word, but they don't mean the same thing. Well, guess what? The Greeks had multiple words. So, the word is agape over and over again. When Paul says, I'm testing the sincerity of your love, your love for Jesus, he's not dealing with an emotion. It's not about having some warm, fuzzy feeling. Can I be honest with you about something? There are days I don't have a warm, fuzzy feeling for Jesus. Pastor Phil. No, there are days I don't feel a thing. There are days I do. There are days I feel something. There are days I don't feel anything, but I want you to see love is more than a feeling. This is why if you're in a marriage, you need to know there are seasons that ebb and flow. There, there are times you're in a 28-year marriage, check this out. I mean, there are fireworks in the sky and you're like on your 14th honeymoon. And there are other times when you don't feel a thing. But that doesn't mean you've fallen out of love just because you've lost that love and feeling. Because love is more than an emotion, love is a motion. You see, that's what God is commanding. He's not commanding you have a warm, fuzzy feeling for Jesus. He's commanding an action, which is faith in motion. You see, that is the test of sincerity of your love. Not whether you're feeling it, but whether you're doing it. And that's what he's commanding now as it pertains to the sacrifice, generosity is born out of selflessness, self-sacrifice. And he uses the example of Jesus as the greatest example ever. He says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now there's prosperity teachers that use this verse to prove that Jesus was rich and you ought to be too. That's not what Paul's teaching here. All right, Paul's not teaching that Jesus was rich materially. What we know is he was a carpenter. He was a carpenter's son. What that means is he wasn't poor. He wasn't in abject poverty, but as a family, he was raised in what we would call working class, lower middle class as a carpenter. All right, but what Paul is talking about here is his deity. Listen, Jesus wasn't born 2,000 years ago and for the first time ever had a beginning in this little town of Bethlehem when he was laid in a manger. Remember, he is from everlasting to everlasting. He is from eternity. He is deity as the second person of the Trinity. He is royalty, yet he stepped out of his robes of royalty and deity and he took on the rags of humanity so that he could die as, as the cross of Calvary and deliver us from sin's penalty. You see, he took on the, the robes and the rags of humanity, though he was deity. Here, here we have the sinless son of God that came like the sons of men so that sons of men could be forgiven of their sin and become like him. And imagine what that cost him. The one who was guiltless that never ever sinned became sin for us. And he poured out his life. He gave all that he had for all of us. 
And now what is Paul saying? He's saying that we should follow his example, the one that gave all he had for all of us is worthy that all of us would give all that we have. You see, he was rich but became poor so that we might become rich as the children of God spiritually forever, for all of eternity. See, generosity that is fearless begins with a love that is selfless. Being selfless and fearless go hand in hand. Living a life that is selfless in this selfie society where there is this scarcity mentality that no matter how much I have monetarily, I need to hoard what I have. I need to hang on to what I have. Do you understand the antithesis, the antitype, the antidote to American materialism is generosity. It's learning to give away what God has given you. You can't grow spiritually if you're not, not letting God grow you in this grace of generosity. There are two lakes in Israel. You'll see both of them if you ever go on the Holy Land tour with us. This is the Sea of Galilee. Chris and I are here at the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a place of beauty. The Sea of Galilee waters all of Israel. The Sea of Galilee is watered by the Jordan, and as the water goes into the sea, it springs forth with life. The Sea of Galilee itself is full of life, and it gives life. It waters all the people of Israel. It waters all of their crops and all of their flocks. As it receives the life of the Jordan, it gives that life away. On the other hand, you have another lake. It's called the Dead Sea. And you see it too is watered by the Jordan, but it gives none of it away. It's a reservoir. And consequently, I took this picture from on top of Masada at the, at the Dead Sea, and you can see it's dead. Appropriately named, it's dead. Nothing can live in it. Nothing receives life from it because it hangs on to what it has. You understand that this is a euphemism, a metaphor for what God wants to do in your life. As you receive the river of water of life, you that were dead, but now you are alive. Ephesians 2 and verse 1. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he has made us alive again. And do you understand as the river of water that has given you life, you receive it only as you give it away freely do you give away the life that God has given you. You try to hang on to it spiritually, you'll live as though you're dead. God has given us life for one reason, to give that life away. And that's what we're trying to do as a church in Blue Springs in Peru, in your life personally, how will you give away the life that has been given to you? This little guy's Caleb. Introduced him to you a week ago. We're sponsoring Caleb. He's three years of age from Shapaha, a little town outside of the larger city of Terrapoto. There's no compassion center around, nothing like it, no church, no evangelical gospel witness. And I thought about this, God has intersected my life with this little guy that can do nothing for me, he can do nothing in return, 38 bucks a month. He's gonna get physical care he wouldn't have gotten otherwise, spiritual care, 450 hours of discipleship every year till the age of 18. See, this is a picture of the gospel. Caleb has nothing to offer me. Do you understand you have nothing really God needs? You have nothing really God wants. 
Yet Jesus came and died for you to redeem you, though you had nothing in return to offer him. You sponsor a child, he's got nothing you need. It's a picture of the gospel, a selfless, in most cases, small sacrifice to give the life God has given you to another. Sometimes people ask, Pastor Phil, what can I do for you? You know what I tell them? You don't need to do anything for me. You wanna do something for me? Bless my bride or bless my children. Bless the ones I love the most. You know what Jesus says? I don't need anything from you, not really. But if you love me, bless my bride. Bless my children. The bride is the church and his children are Caleb. As you've done it to the least of these, my brother, and you've done it unto me. We're launching a church in Peru. We're launching a compassion center too. We can't do it without you. I want you to see this video. It gives you more information. I took a compassion trip earlier this year and went to several different places in Peru and I was really shocked. I was actually surprised. I had pictured Peru being more advanced in terms of its infrastructure. Uh, I saw more poverty in Peru than I was personally prepared for. In my mind's eye, uh, it, it was just going to be more advanced than what it really was. The truth is when you get outside of Lima, uh, poverty is everywhere. In fact, the levels of poverty as much as anywhere I've been, maybe even in the world. And so uh, it was very eye-opening and enlightening to see really the need uh, throughout Peru and what compassion is already doing in Peru. The, you know, the exciting opportunity we have to plant a church and minister to people spiritually while we take care of them physically. It's amazing as you look at Shapaha, it's so primitive, it's jungle-like. You go up these roads and there's washed out roads and they've had to bulldoze around it to, to get up to these cities. Uh, and there's, there's, there's no water, you know, there's some electricity, um, but there's no sewage, there's none of this in these cities. And so these cities are desperate for somebody to come in and help cultivate that community, to help train, to help teach, to help lead. One of the things that we look for when we're planning a church is to identify a really strong leader, a leader that the people respect, a leader that has a good handling of God's word, a leader that has the same heart as that we do as a church, which is to see lives changed by Jesus. Going up into the jungle of Peru, into Shapaha, we, we found this guy, Ilter, who's got a heart and a passion for the people and really does want to see the gospel of Christ reach into the communities of these people. This is the kind of guy that has our heart, that has our passion, and he's the perfect guy to do this with us. Por la ayuda del, con la ayuda del Señor y para el pueblo, estoy trabajando así, liderando la iglesia por dos años y medio. Y estoy empezando con, empecé con mi familia, con mi esposa, en mi casa, en una huerta. Mi casa es una pequeña casa. Cuando ya llenamos la casa, unos de mis hermanos me dijeron, hermanos, estamos llenos. Busquemos otro lugar más amplio, más grande. Y una hermana en Cristo que no está con nosotros me dijo, hermano, yo tengo mi casa. Vamos allá, es más amplio. Y con la ayuda del Señor salimos de mi casa y venimos donde estamos ahora congregando un poco más amplio. 
I was blown away by how many people knew this guy. I mean, he is invested in this community at a real high level. People know who he is, they respect him. He's got a voice into the community and he really, really cares for them. And he was trained by this other gentleman named Haru who has already planted a compassion center in the area, just uh, 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, down the road from them, and he has trained Ilter, he's developed him, he's given him a passion for people and for the, the cause of Christ. Y creemos que solo a través del Evangelio ministrado, predicado a través de la Iglesia, puede producir el cambio que Dios quiere. When I first heard about Compassion, honestly, I was initially rather skeptical. There's so many organizations out there that's all about feeding hungry kids and poverty all around the world. And sometimes some of the money goes to them, but not that much of the money goes to them. And then in the end, if all we do is feed hungry people, what have we done for their souls? How, how does it affect them eternally? What changed my mind about partnering with Compassion is when I found out they are more than just an organization. We're talking about discipling them literally from the cradle to graduation. I look at the children here that we disciple on the weeks uh, that we have church here, and we have about 50 to 55 hours here in the United States. These children over in Terrapoto, in that area, who are part of the Compassion Center, are receiving like 450 hours of discipleship in the Word of God. It's unreal what they're doing. So these kids know and are coming to find Christ as Savior. And then what's really cool is they go back into their homes and their family gets to hear this. So it's not about just simply teaching a child about Jesus, but about teaching a community through these kids what God can do to change your life. The opportunity for our church to make a dynamic impact in this one region of Peru. Can you imagine sponsoring a thousand kids in that one area? And with a thousand kids comes a bunch of moms and dads too, and a bunch of families that we have the opportunity to reach from right here in this city without even leaving this part of the world to make a dynamic impact in a different part of the world. What an opportunity God sets before us. Shapaha um, needs, uh, needs a church, and it needs a compassion center, and it needs Jesus, and here's an opportunity for us to do that. Pero con el amor en el Señor, estamos unidos, somos unos en Cristo, y pedirle sus oraciones a cada uno de ustedes por la Iglesia Berea, y por los niños, y por los que más van a venir. Y eso es la Iglesia que de Berea que les dice sus oraciones por nosotros. Huh? It's going to be really, really cool. Somebody asked why a thousand. Now we're 551 kids already as of one week. Our goal is a thousand. All right? Why a thousand? All right? Part of the reason why, honestly, talking to Paul Loyalist, who's our compassion missionary, and he said it had never been done before. <laughs> so I'm not saying it's super spiritual or anything. I'm just saying, hey, let's be the first. Let's be the first. Sponsor a thousand kids, one area, completely change the fabric of that community for time and for eternity. If you haven't yet and you want to see more, know more, there's a little booth out there with compassion out there in the foyer. Go over there, talk to them about how to do it, how to go about it. Join the movement. Guys, I love you so much. You're just absolutely a joy to get to serve with. God bless you. Have a blessed Sunday, would you? God go with you.